0: This week, the private eye genre just got a little queerer, and I couldn't be happier. Join me, travelers, for a stay at the Penumbra, a podcast series that revives classic genres by representing characters who normally don't get to speak for themselves. This is Radio Drama Revival. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Today, I'd like to introduce you to a Boston outfit called the Penumbra. They take the stalwart genres of radio drama, your film noir, your western, your fantasy, and give them a well-deserved update, one that allows more people to see themselves in fiction. The hard-boiled detective meets a devilishly handsome um um-fatale, not a femme-fatale. The lovable bandit rogue is a genderqueer lesbian. The brave knight is paraplegic and uses a horse where you or I might use a wheelchair. There's nothing wrong with the classics. Well, there might be some things wrong with them, but we'll get to that in the interview. But what I love about the penumbra is the obvious love and care that the team brings to these old story forms, making them new and exciting with their competence and craft. What I have for you today is the rewritten and remastered version of the first episode to feature their flagship character, Juno Steele. Juno's a detective in Hyperion City, the biggest metropolis on Mars. When the head of a notorious crime syndicate slash entertainment network ends up dead, Juno gets drawn into a terrifying web of intrigue involving the Kanagawa family, ancient Martian artifacts, and a handsome and mysterious analyst named Rex Glass. Sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of Juno Steel and the Murderous Mask.
1: Ah, good evening, Traveler. Welcome to the Penumbra. May I take your coat? You've picked an excellent place to spend the night, dear Traveler. The Penumbra is the grandest hotel this side of nowhere. Countless rooms and countless halls. Just look ahead of you. See the doors go on and on. Even we aren't sure how many there are, or what lies behind them all. Will you be staying long? Many of our guests do... You're in good company, traveler. The Penumbra draws guests from everywhere and every when, and all of them have stories to tell. Stories that will excite you, delight you, and maybe even terrify you. Don't believe me? Well, see for yourself. This guest has been a fixture in the Penumbra for as long as anyone can recall. He's a detective by the name of Steel, and he's just received a very strange message from a very old friend. An ancient curse has supposedly claimed its first victim. And if the crime scene is to be believed, Detective Steele might just be its second. What luck! It sounds like he's in. Come, traveler. Come with me into room J-12. (laughs) Juno Steele and the Case of the Murderous Mask
2: Hyperion City. Some people say it's the most beautiful place in the galaxy. The rest of us live there. It's one of those places that they make postcards about, Hyperion. Hell of a skyline, twinkling lights and neon waves below and shimmering satellites hanging above, but here's the thing about a skyline it only shows you the outside of things. On the inside, Inside, things can get messy. I was thinking about that messiness a lot on the day I took the Grimm's mask case. Probably because I was looking at someone's insides at the time.
3: Mrs. Steele! Mr. Steele, what's with that weird message you got a minute ago? Boss?
2: On my screen, I saw what was supposed to be a glass trophy case. But it was hard to tell with all the blood covering it and the lower half of a human being hanging out one side. But believe it or not, that wasn't even what made my heart stop when I looked at it. That honor went to the wall behind the case, on which was written, in blood, Your Next Juno Steele. And that's kind of a problem for me, because it turns out, my name is Juno Steele. I'm a private eye. In a town as ugly as this one, cleaning things up is supposed to be my business, but most of the time... Most of the time, it just feels like I'm spreading the mess around.
3: Whoa, boss! I'm getting another weird message. It's a call of some
2: kind, but the readings are all woobly. And, and who's it from? You can't even feel safe in your own boss's office anymore. Almost made
3: me choke on my pretzel bits, and now I got salmon paste all over Put it my- through already.
4: as
2: well as you treat your friends. Went through by itself. It's alright, Rita. Let her through. It's just... <sighs> Sasha Wire. Excuse me. Agent Sasha Wire, Operative for the Dark Matters Special Investigations Team. We were friends as kids, but it had been 15 years since the last time I saw her. In Hyperion City, there are only three kinds of people. People who eat. People who get eaten. And people like Sasha Wire. Who are smart enough to leave? I had to admit the Dark Matter spook suit looked good on her. The sunglasses were the same color as her hair and the same temperature as her eyes. What's with the long face, Sasha? Regretting not staying away longer, or maybe you're just upset that you had to break your streak?
4: Isn't it possible that I could just be concerned for your safety, Juno? Nope. Fair enough. Have you heard of the death mask of Grimpo Thuthis?
2: Uh, Well, I guess we're talking about business now, then. Wait, hang on. Grim's mask... You gotta be kidding me, Sasha. Don't tell me Dark Matters goes in for hokey urban legends and ghost stories.
4: Until a century ago, Dark Matters was a hokey urban legend, Juno. Forgive us for lending them some professional courtesy.
2: Fine. Grimm's Mask, then. Undisturbed ancient Martian tomb gets discovered over by Olympus Mons during the filming of a Kanagawa primetime special. Kreese's Kanagawa films his big, flashy expose of the excavation, destroys a few thousand years' worth of priceless ancient Martian artifacts, blah blah, until he opens the burial chamber of an ancient Martian ruler. He finds a death mask there, and the carvings around the mask say something about, Who cares? We do,
4: Juno. And you probably should. Ugh. The carvings surrounding Grimm's mask specifically state that, quote, through has earned eternal rest, end quote, and that the mask is to be left undisturbed or else the ghost of Grimm will walk again and seek vengeance upon those who disturb the tomb.
2: When do we get the part about the guy who has the hook for a hand, Sasha? That's my favorite.
4: Take this seriously, Juno. Urban legend or no, all evidence points toward the fact that someone has managed to infiltrate the incredibly sophisticated security system at Kanagawa Mansion, murder Kreases Kanagawa, and paint your name on the wall. Your life is on the line here.
2: That's good. I've been looking for a nice low-stakes case.
4: (sighs) I thought you might say that.
2: Say what? Case. Not everyone
4: looks at a death threat and sees a job opportunity, Juno. Dark Matters is also willing to offer you protection. I'll
2: pass. I'm guessing your protection looks a lot like a new name in a one-room apartment out on some asteroid a billion miles from nowhere.
4: Well, regardless, it's certainly fortunate that you're willing to take this case. We thought it might be a conflict of interest to have you on this, but the Kanagawa family requested
2: you investigate specifically. The Kanagawas want me there, huh? So that's the catch. Sorry, Sasha, you can keep your lousy case. I'll take death threats all day, but I won't walk straight into the guillotine. But
4: you know they were very insistent.
2: Insistent? I'll tell you what I'm insistent about, Sasha. Not getting gutted by a bunch of mobsters with a TV station. Do you know the last thing Kreese said to me? No. It was a little hard to hear through the concussion, but I think it went something to the tune of, If you ever set foot in here again, I'll kill you. What in the world
4: did you do to deserve that?
2: Just saved his son is all. I mean, most of his son. But listen, anyway, that's not the point. I'm not going back there, Sasha. So you can tell Croesus Kanagawa and his cronies that Juno Steel's not going to be their stooge, I any. couldn't
4: tell him that, even if I wanted to, Juno. That corpse in the photograph? That's Croesus.
2: All right, so it turns out I'm interested. You
4: had better be. Either you take this case with our assistance, or you and I start talking about what asteroid you might want to live on. I hear XZ2B21C is very nice this time of century... It has an excellent view of Pluto. Don't throw a tantrum, Juno. An agent will be arriving shortly to aid your investigation. He can fill
2: you in on the details. Oh boy, this day just keeps getting better. I am not being followed around by some jerk in a suit all day, Sasha.
4: Perhaps you can talk him out of the suit, but his assistance is not up for debate. His name is Agent Rex Glass. I've never met him, but his record is spotless and he specializes
5: in issues of this variety. Murders? The occult. The what? Goodbye, Juno. I'll see you in another 15
2: years. Juno Steele is a lot of different guys, depending on the day. Collector of bad art, decent cook, terrible gambler. But here's one thing he's not. An exorcist. So I threw on my coat, grabbed my keys, and spun the right laser carts into my blaster. If I could get out quick enough, I might have been able to solve this case without ever having to hear about ghosts or boogeymen or whatever Agent Tyrannosaurus was into. Might have been able to. If I'd moved a little quicker.
6: Hello? Detective Steele, are you in there? Damn. Dear, could I Thank you. You are a gem upon Mars, Rita. And twice as beautiful. Ah, Detective Steele, how lovely to meet you at last. Detective, are you trying to crawl out that window? I'd say I was succeeding. Well, I heard they do things differently on Mars, but I must admit this is a surprise. (laughs) You'll have to show me your customs, Detective. Is there room in that window for two?
2: His face was lean, but soft, with a cherub smile and a fox's teeth. He looked like he was happy to see me and like he'd be just as happy to kill me if push came to shove. it... Wasn't
6: unpleasant, all things considered? (sighs) Agent Glass, right? Only to my mother, Detective Steele. Call me Rex, please. Yeah, I think I'll pass. Rita? Rita! Oh, I wouldn't bother calling for her, Detective. Miss Rita has been taken care of. The hell is that supposed to mean? Dealt with? Accounted for? I've euphemisms to go around, Detective. Rita! You better not have laid a finger on her. Oh, no, nothing of the kind.
3: <laughs> oh, hello there, Agent Glass.
6: I just found the right way to talk to her. There's a right way to talk to everyone, Detective. You just have to find it. He was hoping we find ours soon, eh? Huh. Uh, you uh, should tell your co worker that. Just got off the phone with Agent Wire. Oh, would you mind catching me up on what you know over dinner? Introductions make me peckish. You can eat in the car. I'm in kind of a rush. Some mummy wants me dead or something. It doesn't sound like that scares you much. Honestly, it doesn't. Well, perhaps you've been poorly informed, then. You see, according to legend, Grimm's ghost takes a subcorporeal form made primarily of animal bones, serrated brass, and clotted blood, and he tears each of the targets of his vengeance into... You get in the car or what? (laughs) Only teasing, detective, only teasing. And even if you are torn to shreds by the talons of an undead nightmare, it won't have been for nothing. This little escapade has gotten me to Mars, and it's gotten me to you, Juno Steele. And I have to say, I'm enjoying both already. Yeah, you sure sound like it. You ready to go? Oh, Juno, I'm always ready.
2: Crease's Kanagawa lived in one of those mansions over uptown. It's easy to find, especially at night. Just look up for the moon. Then look for the bigger moon right next to it. That's Kanagawa's. The mansion was heavily staffed, and I don't mean there were a lot of people there. I mean, just looking at the biceps of the women guarding the door was enough to make you think about how brittle your bones were. Between muscle and firepower, the staff was armed. And they had one other thing in common, too.
6: Juno, is it just me, or did every single one of those people we passed just now have the last name Kanagawa on their name tags?
2: They like to keep their business in the family.
6: But there were so many...
2: There weren't that many. They're just good at surrounding
3: you.
6: Oh! That's comforting.
2: Look, the Kanagawas breed like rabbits, Rex, which is to say that most of them don't make it past 16, but the ones that do are crafty mean,
6: and they'll sell your legs straight off your body if they think they can get five creds for it. Those are savvy rabbits. The kind I'm used to eat carrots and wrinkle their little nosies. This must be your first visit to Mars, then. If you want to keep your limbs, stay clear of the sewers. Duly noted. What do they do, anyway, these Kanagawas? You're kidding. Oh, I know the broad facts. Stars of stream and screen by day, kings of the criminal underground by night. But that's all textbook. I want to hear what it's like down on the ground. Go on, regale me.
2: You got most of it, but stars and kings... eh. Now they've been losing money steadily for years now. Word on the street is Croesus is... was making a lot of bad business decisions, giving a charity,
6: that kind of thing. He's gone soft,
2: then. Lost his edge, too. As of about a year ago, he was taking show ideas from anybody who'd talked to him. That's why I'm in this mess in the first place.
6: You mean why the curse chose you? Because you gave Croesus the idea for a show?
2: Okay, last time I was here, sometime after I saved his son and before Croesus kicked my teeth in, he asked me what kind of shows someone like Juno Steel watches. I told him, whatever my secretary leaves on. And when he wouldn't take that for an answer, and he still hadn't paid me, I said, You know what, Croesus? Right now, I think I'd pay 10,000 creds to watch you dig a deep, deep hole and then bury yourself in it.
6: What's that have to do with the mask? That's
2: how he found the tomb. After he beat the tar out of me, he bought a camera crew to the desert, dug a deep, deep hole, and jumped in to discover the Martian tomb with that dumb death mask inside. Got good ratings, from what I hear.
6: Come on, crime scene should be just up ahead. Allow me to get that door, detective. I can open a door. Forgive me. Chivalry runs in the bloodline. Show your heart through your deeds, Mother used to say. Keep your heart inside and I'll do the same, Glass.
3: Incredible.
2: It was something, all right. Croesus had been killed in his art gallery where Grimm's mask was being kept, and Croesus knew exactly what he liked.
6: Can you imagine... Hundreds of death masks, vaults, tombstones, sarcophagi, all staring you down. Perhaps it's where he wanted to die all along. I don't think Croesus expected to die at all. And you, Juno, where do you imagine yourself dying? In a cold
2: ditch somewhere, just like everybody else. Oh, dream a little. Fine, a warm ditch, then. You don't take
6: anything seriously, do you? You got a problem with that? No. I think it's admirable. Standing up against the big, mean world and laughing... I don't really feel like laughing right now. This place gives me the creeps. I thought you said you didn't believe in curses. This isn't about Grimm's stupid mask, Glass. Someone in this mansion wants me dead. Not dead. uh, Technically speaking. The literature suggests that the walking ghost of Grimm keeps one's consciousness alive in a state of semi-eternal torment. The literature can suggest whatever it wants, Glass, but there are no goddamn ghosts.
3: Juno Steel. Huh. You're next, Juno Steel. Turn around, Juno Steel. Raise your hands, Juno Steel, or I will strike you down where you stand.
6: Perhaps you had better do as the specter asks, Juno. He might shave a few years off your eternity for good behavior.
2: Shut up. Fine, they're up. They're up, mind coming out so I can see the ghost that's going to chat me to death? Silence!
3: Now repeat after me. I, Juno Steel, forfeit my soul to the great Grimpa Thuthis. I, Juno Steel, forfeit my soul to the great Grimpa, I, Steel, the great Grimpa And I really wish I had checked in with my old friends more before I died. Unresolved regret? Temporal verb tense confusion? And I also regret this haircut, because wow... I look awful.
2: Knock it off. Say Say it. it. Cassandra, I know it's you. Just get the hell out here already.
5: (laughs) (laughs) You never could take a joke, could you, Juno?
2: Cassandra Kanagawa had a style all her own. According to her lawyers, that is. There were a few hundred small-town rock stars with acid wash hair and serrated teeth that might have claimed she'd stolen their look, but according to Martian copyright law and a few million in bribes, it was all legally distinct. And more importantly, it was very popular. I liked Cassandra. She was a lot of fun, but I kept reminding myself about that theft anyway, because you can't trust a business person in Hyperion City, especially if you like them.
5: I figured you'd be shaking in your ten-cred shoes, so I thought I'd give you the warm Kanagawa welcome.
2: Real considerate. My dry clean is going to your expenses for this one.
5: Hey, who's Mr. Sunglasses over here?
6: My name is Agent Rex Glass, Miss Kanagawa. It's an honor to meet you.
5: Yeah, wish I could say the same. Min told me you were on the way.
6: Min?
2: Their stepmother. Where is Min, anyway? Expected to get the warm Kanagawa welcome from her, to be honest.
5: Death of a family member comes with a lot of prep, you know. Meetings with the actuary, the funeral director, the writers. Writers? Yeah, writers. Gotta figure out how we're gonna spin this into a three-hour stream special, right? Milk the old man for everything he's worth. It's what he would have wanted.
2: You always were sentimental, Cass. You mind leading us to the crime scene already?
5: Oh, what's the rush? It's not like Dad's going anywhere.
2: (gasps) Damn it, Cassandra, cut it out with the bumps in the night already.
5: Sorry, wasn't me all bumped out. It
6: sounded like it came from that tomb.
2: Oh, come on, Glass. This is a gallery, not a graveyard. There's no way Kreese's fit a tomb in here.
5: Don't be stupid, Juno. Of course he did. What do you call that?
2: That thing that's just a a giant, terrifying stone door with the words Rest in Peace carved into it is all.
5: (laughs) Ah! You always were jumpy.
2: You aren't even a little bit worried about that noise?
5: Oh no, Juno, of course I am. I bet it's just a bunch of ghosts all in a pile, making big spooky ghost faces. Boo! <laughs> Come on. The noise can wait. Let's go.
6: Allow me to get that door. After you.
2: You know, Glass, it was barely cute the first time. So oh, I don't... quit
5: stalling, Juno. Dad's right in here. Incredible! Yeah, it's... quite a scene.
2: I'm not that big a fan of it either.
5: Your next Juno Steele. You usually get my fan mail on your wall, Cass? Don't remind me. Curses and ghosts and whatever? Too creepy.
6: Mm, Yes, creepy. Ms. Kanagawa, do you mind if we conduct our investigation now? I'm afraid you'll have to step back from the body so that Detective Steele can examine it. Me? You are the detective, Detective. You aren't afraid of a little blood, are you? Really, it was a lot of
2: blood that was the problem. It looked like somebody popped a balloon full of pasta bolognese in that damn case, but glass wasn't budging, so I took a deep breath, and I stuck my head inside. There was something on Croesus' face, but it didn't look like any kind of mask I'd ever seen. It was more like a big bronze folding chair crumpled up where his head was supposed to be. If there was a face crammed in there, it probably didn't look much like a face anymore.
5: Find anything interesting?
6: Just a plot summary of all my nightmares for the next year. You haven't even seen the best part. Step aside, please. Hey, hey watch where you
2: Suddenly, the mask snapped open like an accordion. Whatever wore it would have looked like it had three little masks across three little heads, each with too many eyes and noses and other things to count. As for Croesus, well, the thing had tried to split his one big head into three small ones. And succeeded.
6: Amazing, isn't it? One can only imagine what the ancient Martian skeletal structure was like if they could split in this way.
2: If you don't shut up about that right now, me and my breakfast are going to contaminate this crime scene.
5: Oh, pull him out of there, Agent. Dad's going to roll over in his grave if you mess up his stupid trophy case.
2: Don't know if you've noticed, Cass, but I don't think this case could get any messier.
5: All that? That'll come right out. This thing's supposed to get blood on it.
6: What? She's referring to the locks, I believe. Look here, Juno. A set of two DNA key locks, set to open only if the right genetic sample is placed within them. Only the people with the correct DNA signatures could open this case. Unhackable otherwise. So, let me get this straight.
2: Anytime Croesus wanted to take his mask out to play, he had to cut his hand open and bleed all over both locks?
5: Not both, moron. Dad wanted to make sure this thing was completely thief-proof. So he got two that have to be opened simultaneously. The left one was set to his DNA. The right one was set to Cecil's. A- and mine.
2: Pretty interesting detail there, Cass.
5: You keep looking at me like that, and I'm gonna knock your eyes right out of your skull, Steel.
2: Like what? This is how I look at all my friends who've got a 50-50 shot at being murderers.
6: You little- Miss Kanagawa, would it interrupt any of your family's plans for mourning if I were to remove the mask? I have some readings I'd like to run on it. Whatever. Knock yourself out. Say hi to Creases for me. And, uh, thanks, Glass. Any Anytime.
2: <clears throat> God admit, it's weird seeing creases in there. knew they'd call me in to investigate him one day, but I always thought he'd be the killer, not the victim.
5: Don't count him out yet. Dad found a way to cheat everyone he ever met. Death's got its work cut out for it. Fascinating. What
6: an extraordinary polymer.
2: If you don't mind my saying, Cass, you don't sound all that upset the old man's dead. He'd cheat you recently.
5: No. No, he didn't, actually. It's just... This is a lot easier if I pretend he did.
6: mask's material, unlike anything else, incredible. It changes to assume the shape of what it contains.
1: So what
2: were you looking for when we first came in here?
5: What are you talking about?
2: Come on, it doesn't take a genius to figure it out. When you stepped through that door, the first thing you did was look behind the plant. Not that hard to find creases. He's right in front of my love letter on the wall over there.
6: Hmm. Just one good push. That's all it would take. With one good push, the mask could swallow its victim whole.
2: Rex, kind of in the middle of an interrogation over here.
6: Oh, Apologies, Detective. I'll just bring the mask over here, then. Interrogation,
5: huh? You haven't changed a bit.
2: Just trying to lay it all out on the table for you, Cass. You can lie to me as much as you want, but I'm going to figure it all out eventually, and it's not going to look good for you if you start fibbing.
5: the hell happened to you, Juno? You used to be... I don't know, huh, fun.
2: You and I might have called it fun, Cass, but my liver have a slightly different interpretation. Look, I'm not saying you killed him. I am saying you'd better start talking if you want to persuade me otherwise.
5: Look, what if I had one of those... those lullaby things?
2: I hope you mean alibi, Cass, because I'm really not in the mood for a nap.
5: Yeah, yeah, that. I was out all night last night, with my bodyguards and driver. The car has a time-stamped camera feed, too. Here, I'll bring it up on my comms.
2: The footage looked alright. Cassandra Kanagawa lounging in a stretch limo with half a dozen bodyguards and room enough for a dozen more. She flipped forward two hours, and the stream showed her drinking in a bar with her chauffeur. Another two hours, and she was shouting down some poor cashier. Another two, and she was back in the limo. It was an alibi airtight enough to suffocate in.
5: That about clear me?
2: The way I operate, Cass, not even I'm cleared until this case is closed. You think Cecil has an alibi like this?
5: Cecil was here all night. Min grounded him.
2: Grounded? Isn't he like 30?
5: That says a lot about either Cecil or Min, Juno. I'll let you pick which.
2: Pretty sure Cecil's televised himself killing a guy before a cast. What's it take to get grounded in the Kanagawa household?
5: Cecil's been blowing through money like it's for sale, Juno. He got the collector's bug real bad.
2: For like, hollow stamps or something?
5: Old torture devices, actually. Min keeps making him sell them all back, but he's grounded until he can control his wallet. Poor kid's not going to see the light of day until he's ready to retire.
2: Well, that's some good news, anyway. I always thought the world would be a lot safer with Cecil locked up. What were you doing last night, Cass? You looked pretty upset at that cashier.
5: Shopping around for interstellar haulers, if you gotta know. A spaceship? A spaceship?
2: This doesn't have anything to do with that big dream of yours, does it?
5: You remember?
2: It sounded like a hell of a show.
5: It isn't going to be a show. Cecil has shows. Dad has shows. This is going to be art, you moron. Documentaries across every habitable planet in the galaxy? A project so big nobody's ever even tried it before? I'm gonna show, show everyone. everyone
2: how people really live. Show them there are places out there that aren't like this city. Show them how many ways people have figured out how to be people.
5: That's. yeah, that's right.
2: As you told me your dad wasn't gonna let you do it, he said it'd never make any money.
5: It still probably won't, but he changed his mind. We had enough in the budget for one new show, so Cecil and I were each going to pitch one. Cecil's was good, too. Would have more than made up for all his stupid torture machines. But Dad could tell how much this meant to me. He told me... He told me I could... I think I'm done talking now, Juno. Fair enough.
2: Fair enough. Just one last question.
5: Do you not get what done talking means? What were
2: you looking for in here?
5: I don't need to answer that. You have my alibi. That's enough.
2: Could be. I'd like to know for sure, though.
5: Trust me, Juno, there are some mysteries you don't want to solve. Some things... Some things are just personal.
2: Maybe. Why not tell me what you were looking for? Then we can discuss which category this falls under.
5: If you want to know, you'll have to get a warrant. And a brace for those broken ribs. Which broken? (coughs) Ow. Those broken ribs. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Later, Juno. Good luck with the whole death curse thing.
2: Hey, wait a second. At least tell me where we're supposed to find Cecil.
5: He's probably in his stupid workshop. where the hell is that? Remember those creepy tomb doors in Dad's collection?
2: You're kidding me.
5: Have fun in there. Just be sure Cecil's big machines don't get you first. After all, there's a monster on the loose. Woo!
2: (laughs) Wow, I hate this family. Rex, you find anything over there?
6: Oh, did Cassandra leave? Oh, it's a pity I wanted to ask her about these doors.
2: What, are they haunted or something?
6: No, I'm just looking to remodel. Shall we continue on, Juno?
2: You sure there's nothing else over there? That was pretty quick.
6: In training, they taught us that your chances of solving a murder plummet seven hours after death, detective. We have to keep moving.
2: Back in the HCPD, they always told us 24 hours.
6: Well, that certainly explains a lot about the Martian crime rate, I'd say. Shall we?
2: Sure, Rex, whatever you say. I dragged my heels on the way back to the creepy tomb door. I had something big on my mind for one thing, but more pressingly, I really didn't want to know what tortured machines or ancient ghosts or goddamn dinosaurs were looking back there making that noise.
6: Well, the inside of this doesn't look like an abandoned tomb so much as an abandoned spaceship. You sound disappointed. Not at all. Some of the strongest paranormal activities have taken place in sunken ships. Space pirates' curses and alien specters. You don't really buy all that stuff, do you? I believe in things bigger than us. In things outside of our comprehension. The universe is full of mysteries, Juno. Where we go when we die. Why some objects seem to bring luck or misery wherever they go. What strange force causes two strangers to become closer...
2: No mystery to that last one, Rex. I hear you can buy it by the bottle so long as you have a valid form of ID on you.
6: <laughs> what has you so cranky? I hear there's a name for it, but I never ask. Psychiatrists give me the creeps. Really, now? I want to work with you, Juno, but if I'm going to do so, you'll have to cooperate. <sighs>
2: Look, last time I did a case for the Kanagawa's,
6: I messed up, okay? I did something really stupid
2: and they've wanted to get me for it ever since. Which was? Yeah, no. Not getting into that.
6: You're worried that this is a trap, then? Felt that was pretty clear will allow me to alleviate those fears, Detective. It is definitely a trap. Hey, would you look at that. My fear's just up and disappeared. That's incredible, Rex. Thanks for the amazing secret agent stuff. It's simple. Cassandra was far too willing to allow me to tamper with the crime scene. Min has invited you into her home and sent her daughter to you, but she herself is nowhere to be found. Absolutely everyone has been leading us here to this hallway with those horrible noises. Case in point, it seems absolutely certain that they all want us to come here to where Cecil is. The only question is why. Or if they even have the same reasons. It sound like it's getting closer to you? I would certainly rather not find out. Damn it, there's nowhere to hide. I wouldn't be so sure of that. Now, if I recall correctly...
2: Glasses really seem like the time to give the wall a massage. Just a moment.
6: Aha! Quickly, in here.
3: What in the... Now...
6: sounds like it was very close hey glass mind telling me where the hell
2: that secret door came from you got a top secret classified door making gadget hitting that code
6: no no those aren't available until the clearance level above mine but a good agent never goes into a job unprepared and when i read about the kanagawa's reputation i took the precaution of memorizing the floor plan to their mansion you don't say you can tell a lot about the denizens of a building from its floor plan Houses are much like the people within them. All hold secrets. Twists and turns. And giant screaming monsters, apparently. Sounds like it's right outside. What the hell are we going to do about this thing? Oh, nothing at all. That's not what I expected. If we open this door, it will find us and likely kill us. If it opens this door, the very same. This may be difficult for an investigator to swallow, but there are some things one should not investigate. You're
2: not the first person to tell me that
6: today. So, given all that, there's nothing to be done but wait. Hope that we don't die, and hope even more that the creature leaves some evidence or ectoplasm behind to examine. And in the meantime, I'm much more interested in you. That makes one of us. You've just implied that everyone has a monster lurking in the halls of their mind. If we're going to rely on each other in this haunted mansion... Is it so strange that I would be interested in what shapes your demons take?
2: I'm a little more concerned about the shape of the demon that wants me dead, honestly.
0: You have a very interesting
6: name. Juno. Juno. Like the goddess, I assume? Mothers, guardians, protectors?
2: Not sure that's what Mom had in mind. Looked the name up once. Turns out Juno was a real piece of work. Had a mean streak a mile wide and a nasty habit of killing her kids.
6: And do you have a mean streak, Detective?
2: Nope mom dead though. Never killed me, but that wasn't for lack of trying. How about Rex? That mean anything?
6: Look at me, Juno. I am? No, no. Look at me. Really look. Now tell me, what do you think Rex means? <laughs> right now I'm thinking it's someone who took Psych 101 a little too seriously. <laughs> Very close. It means king, Juno, in a language dead ten thousand years. I take my name as a creed to live by. Control your name, and you control yourself.
2: It's a pretty thought, Rex. I wish it were that simple. (laughs) Goddess of protectors. What was that? We've wasted enough time already. That thing hasn't made any noise for a while. Maybe it's found somebody else to eat.
6: I would advise caution. Looks like the coast is clear. Let's go. Well, so much for Caution. Juno, I do want to apologize. I hope you haven't taken too much offense. Shh. I can tell you're upset, Detective, but shushing seems entirely unnecessary. Just shut up, don't you hear that? Here. What in the world is that? It sounds so familiar. It might be... <gasps> cameraman. It might be what?
2: Rex, I need you to do two things for me. First, look
6: above us. Slowly. Detective? Yeah? Is that a man with a camera for a head hanging from the ceiling? By a broad definition, yeah. And what's the second thing you wanted me to do? Run. What in the world is that thing? It's a cameraman. One of Cecil's goddamn genetic engineering experiments. Picks up a DNA cocktail from
2: all the biggest, fastest, meanest climbers... In the Animal Kingdom, they replaced
6: its hands with grappling hooks, and its head with the best cybernetic video cameras money can buy. You've seen these before, and you didn't recognize that noise? Thank you, yes, but the demonstration is not necessary. This looks like a new model. They didn't have quite so many arms last time I saw. It's gaining! Yeah, I can see that, thanks! Maybe think about coming up with an idea instead of shouting status updates like a goddamn- Julia, watch where you're going! (laughs) It's... stopped.
2: Very courteous. I'll just run face-first into a few more floors and maybe it'll start going backwards.
6: It's moving again. What in the world? Juno, why didn't the cameraman drop onto us immediately when you discovered it? We looked up at it and it wasn't until we started running that it followed. Perhaps it doesn't want to catch us. Whoa! funny way of showing it. But
2: well, that's not a bad point, Rex. If it wanted to catch us, drag us off to wherever Cecil wants us, why didn't it just get us then? Or when I fell?
6: Perhaps it was enjoying the show? The
2: show! That's
6: it. Quick, Rex. Hit me. W- what? damage? do I gotta do everything myself? <clears throat> that was... Well, I suppose that was good television. Good television's what it wants. Now, you hit me. Quickly. Well, if you insist. <coughs> oh. Come on, are you kidding me? That was nothing. Juno, this is the strangest case. Hit me! <laughs>
2: Alright, hit me again and move closer to the door.
6: Are you sure you shouldn't hit me?
3: Just do it!
2: <coughs>
6: Almost there. <sighs> Well, that was
2: exhilarating. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm going to go sit down now. Allow me to. I can get there on my own.
6: This mansion
2: is certainly full of
6: surprises.
2: Can we just be quiet for a second, please?
6: Of course. I wonder where we are now. It's so dark in here, but from the sound of it, the room is very large. And these chairs are very strange, aren't they? Such an odd design. Why, from the look of it, they appear to be... Oh dear. What now? Didn't Cassandra say that Cecil had been collecting ancient torture devices? Yeah, but he sold them all off. Because... Well, I don't know how to break this to you, Detective, but... These chairs appear to be... (coughs) What the hell? These bars. The chairs have locked us into place.
5: Esteemed visitors! Elders and gentlemen! God damn it. Tonight, for your viewing pleasure, a private investigator and a special agent, two experts of the quick escape, will attempt the most deadly feat to ever air on the stream.
6: We will?
5: They've avoided the Beast of the Halls. They've avoided my mother. But can they avoid the Throne of Spinning Blade? Oh! Brought to you by the Kanagawa Corporation, this is... Cecil Kanagawa's From the
3: Jaws of Death!
5: (laughs) Hello there, Junebug. Remember me?
2: Did I remember Cecil Kanagawa? Of course I did. Because if, like Agent Glass says, everyone's mind is like a building with monsters inside, let's call Cecil's mind a demon's apartment complex with room after room of narcissism and sadism and all the isms that should have guaranteed him a lot of professional help. Instead, it got him the most popular entertainment network on Mars.
6: Do you have a plan, Juno? Cameraman! it's showtime!
2: In the light of the room, I could see all of them now. Half a dozen cameramen clambering up onto all those nightmare sets in Cecil's playground of spikes and blades and brand logos. All their lenses were trained on you us.
6: Juno, know, I asked if you had a plan. Just one. Bust out of here and then bust Cecil in his twisted little face. That would be helpful. And
2: until then? Only one thing to do, Rex. Smile for the camera.
0: And that was part one of Juno Steel and the Murderous Mask. If you want to hear part two, subscribe to the Penumbra Podcast by going to thepenumbrapodcast.com. They've just updated their website and it's beautiful. You'll hear a conversation with Sophie and Kevin, the creators of the Penumbra, in just a minute. So, I got the chance to talk to Sophie Kaner and Kevin Vibert, the fearless leaders of the Penumbra production team. We talk about the genre fiction that inspires them, the philosophy of sci fi, masculinity and queer coding in film noir, and exclusive to this program, A Scoop. Take a listen. Sophie and Kevin, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you for coming on the show.
4: Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, We're thank super you. excited.
0: So one of the things that really attracted me to the Penumbra podcast was its its ethos, like your your mission statement really, in addition to the quality of the programming, is what makes it shine for me. Could could we talk about um, your principles of representation?
4: Yeah, totally. So I, I can't say that when we started, I, th- I think we're pretty open about how we started the show and that we didn't know where it was going when we started, which is why it, very much starts off as an anthology and then completely gives up on that. Uh, (laughs) So we didn't really have those guiding principles when we started. And I would say that they started to coalesce when we started developing, um, the Juno steel story. And I think we've always been personally big on representation, but when we started creating so consistently, um, it became much more important to us. And, um, I mean, Kevin, I don't know if you want to talk about Juno a little bit because that's a little bit personal for
1: you. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that sort of led us to creating Juno himself, uh, was we, you know, we knew we wanted to do some kind of, uh, a noir private eye story. Um, we wanted hmm. to do kind of a sci-fi story. Uh, partially because I've always really been drawn to, like, you know, the noir PI character. Uh, and around that time in my life, I was sort of <laughs> was figuring out that I was bisexual, and it was a very kind mm-hmm. of confusing experience for me. And I remember once, it, once I had settled on it, uh, my predominant feeling was actually just sort of feeling like I got a bum deal, uh, not in the sense of who I was, but in the sense that, like, our entire culture was so dedicated to pretending that I didn't exist. That ultimately, a lot of why it feels to me like it took me so long to figure it out and I kind of underwent so much confusion and anxiety and pain when I was younger about it was just because uh, there weren't really enough characters that showed me that that was even an option, that you could be a bi man and it could be cool. Uh, And that could be a character that that you would want to be that aspirational in the same way that like, you know, a Sam Spade and a Maltese Falcon is super slick. Uh, or one of our original ideas about Juno, which is funny because it's not the way that he went, was it's like how you know uh, James Bond always walks away uh, and like has the Bond girl, and it's like, well, what what you know, why does it need to be a Bond girl?
4: Right. Why does it need to be a femme fatale? And then we thought, oh well, he should get an homme fatal, which is how Peter Nureyev came to be. Um, and I think once we had established that. We realized, I mean, on a personal level, that made such a big difference to Kevin because we were like, God, how many how many bisexual male characters, let alone leads, can you think of in media at all, really, ever? <laughs> and I think I put out some kind of like crowdsourcing call on Facebook to ask people what they could think of. And in all the answers, when I sorted through all of them, I think between all of us, we could come up with maybe five characters all time which is pretty depressing. Um, So anyway, we kind of saw what a personal difference that made for Kevin in in his journey. And then that taught us a lesson about, oh my gosh, God, there's such a dearth of so many kinds of people that we could represent in stories because everyone really deserves to see themselves, right? And so we started creating more genderqueer characters and also, I mean... Not to, not to, this is not insignificant, just female characters, you know, like women don't get to be represented in enough different types of ways. And I think more recently we've gotten more badass female characters, but even that is kind of limiting in the way that women get to be fierce and tough. And usually they still have to be really hot. (laughs) Um, And I'm, I'm very tired of that (laughs) too. (laughs) Um, and, and the more we think about it, the more we get excited about different types of characters. And I think it probably becomes noticeable as the show continues that what we do a lot of is, oh, let's start out with this trope and then turn it on its head.
0: Sophie, in an interview, you had said that, um, science fiction could be considered a branch of philosophy. Uh Oh, are you going to hold me to that? (laughs) I wonder if you could expand on that for me.
4: Sure. Um, yeah, because I, I think that, In science fiction, what you have to do is present a view of the world as it could be. And that means that you have to uh, put some thought into how, how you think people can and should behave. So, I mean... It all usually comes back to the Juno Steel series because that's sci-fi and um, we've created this place, which is Hyperion City. And we put our philosophy into it about dismantling the gender binary and about how we think, you know, various types of sexuality should be accepted. And yeah, no, I think that whenever you want to create a whole different world, you, you have to create a philosophy, you know. In, in order for it to function. Yeah, that's why I think that.
0: Sure. I want to go back to the very beginning of the Penumbra, because I think, I, I understand that the first two pieces were um Shaken and Home, is that correct? Correct. Yep. Uh, and th- those are the pieces that, to me, make the Penumbra feel more Twilight Zony, more anthology-like, like you were saying. What motivated the switch to focusing on Juno Steel and the other genre pieces?
1: Uh I mean... What what really motivated it was the first Juno Steel story, we were initially wondering whether or not that was going to be a one shot, too. Uh, and by the end of our time with it, we were very much set on like, no, there's there's a lot more to be done with this character. Uh, this character mm-hmm. has spoken to us in a way that we're really not ready to let him go. Because, you know, uh, Murder's Mask parts one and two were the third and fourth episodes that we'd written. But even as soon as those were written, I think we had a pretty good sense that that was the general direction. Uh, that was the general direction that we were headed. Um, and then in terms of moving into other genres, it was it was the kind of thing where we had a bunch of horror stories kind of planned out that we thought we wanted to do. Uh, but once the representation uh, and trope bending angle became so important to us, it became a lot more exciting, I think, to think about in terms of our creative process and how we create and brainstorm together to think about, uh, you know, what what I- what tropes of hero can we uh, have other kinds of people in, right? Uh, mm-hmm. How can we broaden the definition of hero? And that was something that we got very invested in uh, for a while in such a way that we haven't gone back to horror in the same way yet. But I think ultimately it's that we found our direction, right? And that's what brought us there.
4: Yeah. And we also, frankly, burned out on doing one-shot stories. We had like, I don't know, three or four ideas. We were still going to do at least one more one-shot story um, for the first season. And then we just we just couldn't. Mm-hmm. We couldn't do it. Um, so we ended up really adding more to Juno Steel. And then, um, as I think you probably know, for season two, we're building out the second Citadel storyline, which started with Janice Beast, um, into another storyline uh, because we've gotten invested in those characters as well, which we realize is a pretty unorthodox um, format for a show. But we like what we like.
0: <laughs> so con- connected to the second Citadel world, uh, so if you have a question about your background as a dancer and an aerialist. Okay. This is, is going to sound kind of like a left field question. Yeah, it I, I is. Hope it's I like hot. it. <laughs> um, so there, there are several pe- set pieces in the penumbra in the, in the shows that you have done, yeah. including Sir Mark, Sir Caroline and Sir Talfron's fight with the Janus beast in the second Citadel that require a lot of like blocking, physical mm. blocking within the audio medium. Um, does your, does your training as a dancer, um, affect the way that you stage action in audio fiction?
4: I love that question so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I have said this a few times. So, I mean, I am relatively new to sound design. And, I mean, as with so many things with the penumbra, it sort of wasn't intentional that I took it over. It was, I think, just, like, annoyance. (laughs) <laughs> and And I got really invested in it and and actually, I do find it very relevant to dance because, in my opinion, it's all in the timing and yeah and and the rhythm of the way people move and I do have to really key into that, even with um footsteps and it's like somebody's running over here, and like how fast paced is it um or how long is this person how how long are these person's legs um yeah.
0: Because I think that a a pitfall that that people can can fall into when um, they start making audio fiction is is not situating bodies in space, just sort of saying, well, this will this will suggest a kind of physical movement. But what really interests me is when when the sound designer understands that those sounds represent you know human footfalls and like weight, right?
4: Yeah. I do I do try to think about where people are in space. And, and I will say, I mean, sometimes I just have to ignore it, like, for the... I mean, and, and this is where it's such a learning process, where it's like, we, you know, go through the script together, and it sounds like it's going to be fine, and then we get it all recorded, and then I'm like, oh my god, I just realized that there's, like, 15 police officers <laughs> standing in this room, and, like, Juno has no excuse for being able to get away from them because they should just be able to catch up to him and on the page, it looks fine, you know? And when you actually get there to the sound design, you're like, Oh, Darn, (laughs) this doesn't make that much sense. (laughs) And so sometimes I have actually just had to fudge it, I'll admit, and just assume that nobody notices, like, oh, they're all just kind of standing there. Um, But yes, I do, I do, it makes a big difference to me to try and visualize it, to block it. Um, What we do for, I I actually don't know what other people do, what we do for fight scenes now is I have people create for me a library of fight sounds um, for that given scene, and I say, okay, make a bunch of noises like you're getting punched, make a bunch of noises like you're punching someone, and then I put them together. And then as I'm doing that, I'm kind of choreographing in post how the fight looks. So it's not decided until later, usually.
0: So before the two of you got started with the Penumbra, Sophie, neither you nor Kevin had any audio experience, right? Right. None. So how did you set about teaching yourself sound design?
4: Oh, my gosh. Um, Just (laughs) so much trial and error. I mean, I still use audacity at this moment i think i'm gonna be i'll be upgrading soon i think to a different program but i still use audacity because it's free (laughs) and it's the biggest tragedy of my life and um i no i had no idea what i was doing we got a couple of books um i what's the one i have the sound sound design bible i think think so
1: or sound effects bible.
4: sound effects bible Um, oh
0: rick veer's does it have the the bomb on it
4: yes yes um, which is fantastic, and that has been a help. But I use, you know, free sound effects. I make sound effects. Um, I YouTube things a lot, and it's just trial and error. And I mean, you can hear from the beginning the trial and error um, at, in how like shoddy the quality is at the beginning. And you know, you can hear me learn as I go. Um, yeah,
0: you. I can definitely hear. Let me let me put it this way. I can definitely hear you improving quickly.
4: Thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just, I just had to tear out my hair a lot and experiment.
0: So this is a question for both of you, but I want to start with you, Kevin. I want to go back to Dashiel Hammett, mm-hmm. um, and ask you to tell me about your problematic faves. Um, what are the <laughs> genre influences that you love, but have elements that make you cringe? And how did you want to, what did you want to keep from, mm-hmm. from those influences? And what did you want to leave behind?
1: Okay, uh, yeah, Dashiell Hammett is is the place to go, isn't he? Uh, I absolutely adore the novel, The Maltese Falcon. It, it like is one of the ones that I will just kind of always go back to. Um, the thing about when you are grabbing, uh, you know, noir stories from that era, or really, you know, any genre that's super dominated by tropes, and it comes back to tropes for us a lot, is that. Tropes are great because they're repetitive, they're satisfying, they're characters that you recognize in new packages. They also suggest a certain way that people are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, you know, the fact that we have so many uh, femmes fatales, uh, yes, they are dangerous, they are interesting, and stuff like that. But they're also, they're dangerous and interesting the same way every time. And it suggests a certain way about uh, the way that that people need to behave, Right. Uh, so even though I love, uh, Miss Wonderly in, in the Maltese Falcon, I think that she is so interesting and I love the fact that she is like so two-faced in this amazing, completely effortless way. Uh, the fact that you see that character type over and over and over again makes it such that she herself is not a problem, but the fact that she exists within a pattern of characters that are exactly the same and are all women is a problem. Um, right. So really, I mean, even more than, uh, Individual characters. It ends up being the tropes and the character types that really speak to me, um, which is one of the reasons I think that Sophie and I, bizarrely, will always speak extremely highly of *Who Framed Roger Rabbit* as like one of the best examples of the noir genre. Um, sure, because it like it doesn't completely skirt that stuff, but it dodges a lot of it, uh, and at, while at the same time being a very strong, very fun. Uh, noir story that hits kind of all the major you know structural beats that you would want to hit.
0: Some something that's interesting to me about noir and Kevin, I think you said this in an interview, is you wanted to you wanted to separate the masculinity of the noir genre from its homophobia. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could you could dive into that and like I don't know I find I find the the curation of masculinities within Juno Steel to be really refreshing and cool um and i'm seeing a lot of that in in podcast uh drama like in the bright sessions i'm really liking the portrayal of just like the diversity of masculinity uh mm-hmm. across across different characters um it's not really a question it's just sort of like a me gently lobbing a topic at you
1: right okay, fair um i'll use i'll use the Maltese falcon again cuz it's the one in, uh, in my mind although at this point, it's been a few years since I've read it, and I'm terrible at remembering character names, so I'm going to need to stumble through this. Great. Uh, uh, Peter Laurie's character in the movie of the Maltese Falcon. Oh, yeah. in the, mm-hmm. in That's the Right. I mean, in the novel, he is very transparently coded for, like, you know, there's this big, you know, muscular, hot goon that he's always hanging around with. And it's clear that they're in, like, a relationship, but it's just used in this way of, like, oh, look at this, like, creepy, slimy guy. Uh, As opposed to Sam Spade, who uh, is like, it's this weird thing where it's, um, it's actually super contradictory, because, you know, uh, the noir hero is not, you know, the super ripped, perfect epitome of like physical masculinity. Like Sam Spade is described as looking like a shaved bear, like he's (laughs) a weird looking dude. Um, But the fact is that like. His just his bearing, his masculinity, the way that he just kind of like owns any situation with a woman in it is what makes him on top. Whereas the fact that the female characters can kind of beat Peter Laurie's character around is one of the things that make him kind of like weird and gross and creepy. Uh, And it's this whole it it asserts a pecking order, uh, which makes me extremely uncomfortable. Well,
4: actually, now that I think about it, I think in noir male attractiveness is not a virtue mm-hmm. that's actually looked down upon. Like, you actually want to be... In noir, I think what you want to be is, like, rugged and, like, kind of ugly and, like... Maybe hungover? You know, yes. like Yeah, with, like, huge bags under your eyes. Like, that's your goal in noir. I think, right. like, that's who you want to mm-hmm. be. And then I think that, yeah, any anyone who's just... Uh, any male who's described as handsome, I feel like in noir, it's like... Oh, you know, he you know had his hair slicked back, and he was all fancy and like probably gay, you know. Right. Like
3: that's sure. it's not a virtue. So like,
0: handsomeness is as as queer coding. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think okay. so. Because I've been thinking about this. I mean, this is this is well trod ground, but I was thinking about it specifically because my partner and I were watching Aladdin yesterday, mm. and just thinking about like the the great tradition of male Disney villains being queer coded in that very particular way mm-hmm. like um Jafar has that very cat like has very cat like features and heavy makeup mm-hmm. interesting um and is just kind of kind of fey mm-hmm. um yep. and what I, what I really like about Juno Steel is that queer coding like obviously is not <laughs> is not inherently problematic right. you know like Rex Glass is handsome and effete and devilishly sexy yeah. and dangerous but not not because of his gender presentation right
4: right yeah that was that was important to us and you know and and of course this has come up many times like you know the fact that Juno refers to himself as a lady mm-hmm. which i think and and we're, we're leaning more into that as we go along for sure
0: so Juno is non-binary is that what's the yes. what, what is the verdict you came to yes
4: he is I mean so basically what it is is we in our time and place would call him non binary. He never will because the gender binary is not really a thing on Mars. Um, so it's kind of he I don't he would never say it. He would also never say he was bisexual, even though he is, because that just on Mars it's like, nah, you just are what you are and nobody really bothers you about it. Um, And that's kind of the one good thing they have going for them in Hyperion City. (laughs) Um, So uh, often enough, and I understand why people do this, and people often say, you know, is he ever going to say he's non-binary? Will we ever hear him say that on the show? And... He won't, not because he isn't. I mean, he definitely is. It's just that that language is not relevant to his life.
1: Right. And we are fully aware that that is very often used as a defense uh, in cases where it's like, well, you know, we're never going to talk about queerness in this story because it's just not relevant. And then that is sort of a reason for all of the characters to be straight. Part of the thing for us, I think, is that it's sort of important that it not come up, at least in the Juno Steel series. Uh, because part of what we want to present is a, in this way, Juno's universe is a utopia, right? It is a place where your personal conception of yourself can just change and everybody kind of leaves you alone and it's not a big deal. Uh, and it's, yeah, there's
0: other more salient problems. Mm -hmm.
4: Right. That being said, we do plan to present a different view of things as we build out second Citadel. It might be a little bit clear already from just that one episode, the Janus beast, um, yeah. that that is a much more conservative society. Yes, um, very much so. And so as people, as characters start to break out of that, they're going to have to grapple with it a lot more explicitly in that universe um, because it is not a utopia in that way. So I think those those two worlds will be in opposition to each other.
0: Sophie, what about you? What are your favorite, what are your problematic faves? Let's see...
4: I mean, I, I really like um, big, sweeping, dramatic stories. I really love um, the Scarlet Pimpernel and Ivanhoe and the Three Musketeers. Um, really into those. Um, and those are also, like, super big on gender roles. The best you'll get is, like, the, the female lead will do really cool stuff. But, like, she'll just be so pretty while she does it. <laughs> she'll just be the prettiest. <laughs> Um, which I, you know, is of course like super limiting and problematic in its own way. Um, yeah. So, so those are some of my favorites.
0: So I read a really lovely post that you wrote, Sophie, on the Penumbra's Tumblr in the wake of the election, uh, in which you vowed to stand up for your listenership. And I have no doubt that you'll do exactly that. Um, but my question is this, how are the two of you taking care of yourselves in the wake of the election? What does Sophie and Kevin's (laughs) self-care look like?
4: Oh, we don't do a very good job of it <laughs> at all, honestly. We we talk about it a lot because because it's true. It's like if you don't if you don't take care of yourself first, then you you just genuinely, honestly cannot take care of other right. people. And I I hate that that is the case, but it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I I mean sometimes I won't speak for you, Kevin, but I I certainly do feel absolutely crushed under the weight of it, and I do. Feel really like I'm not doing enough, and I think, and I'm I am so scared, and I know most people are. Like I'm just so afraid, and I feel, I just so feel, I, I just feel so afraid of of inauguration day, um, and everything to follow. Um, but but um, you know, actually, our our fans help a lot, <laughs> and the knowledge that. What we put out into the world helps other people, helps us a lot. And actually, Kevin, like, talked me down from a ledge literally yesterday uh, because I was feeling so crushed. And I was like, I can't even focus on work and, like, putting together the show because I'm so fearful. And he was like, well, but we're doing good things for people. You are. Which I'm I'm really – grateful for the fact that that has come to be however it happened um and knowing that like if if we made somebody's day better or if we made somebody able to go on with what they're doing then that really makes it worth it for me no matter what happens yeah
0: (laughs) kevin how about you um
1: i (laughs) i do my best i have said this elsewhere of the two of us i am certainly the one with the depressive tendencies uh so to answer your question i also just i see a therapist and i see a psychiatrist to to handle a lot of that stuff to be honest working on this show helps me a lot uh not you know both because absolutely because of what sophie said uh i think that it's it's a very real value to me that you know even if we are in a position where we don't have a ton of time and we don't have a ton of money to put towards causes that we might want to put them towards. uh, We are in a position to, you know, help people out and inspire people such that they can help us do that. Right. Or or they can also, you know, stand up in, in a time that we really need standing up. Um, The other half of how working on the show really works for me is uh, my depressive tendencies do not, come out the same way that Juno's do. We are very different in a lot of ways. We are also very similar in a lot of ways. And there are times writing through him and writing through some characters that are going to be popping up in Second Citadel next season for for other mental health-related reasons um, really helps me to kind of compartmentalize what's going on inside of me. Uh, the most direct example I can think of that that I trot out sometimes is the The conversation at the end of part two of Juno Steel and Data Day That Wouldn't Die between Juno and Mick is uh, what Juno is talking through there, this like sense of, you know, if I'm part of something and it goes wrong, then it's all my fault is absolutely a thing that I feel extremely consistently, even after having written that. But knowing that that is compartmentalized elsewhere uh, that I was able to identify that as a thing this character has to work on helps me to put it in a bubble in myself and say, okay, there's work to be done right now. You can't pull a Juno and be so full of yourself. Uh, you've got to find <laughs> a way to be actually active right now. And you know it doesn't it doesn't work 100% of the time, but a lot of the time it helps to pull me out of it and, and keep on moving. Sure.
4: And I mean, we have each other and that's really big. Yes. Yeah. And- How did
0: the two of you meet?
4: <laughs> um, in college
0: you both went to UMass UMass Amherst
4: yes we went to UMass Amherst um, and we were in the same writing program I, we're a couple I don't I don't know if we've ever explicitly said that but, oh okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so and we've been together for seven more than seven years mm-hmm. um, yeah I guess
1: we've
0: probably never I guess we've
4: it. never explicitly said that it's out there now now people know yeah,
0: um, yeah. you heard it here first folks what yeah. a scoop yep <laughs> um what what is it like to work creatively with your partner
4: it's so good it's great it's actually good it's great and like i can't believe we never thought to do it before oh no you know what i'm in trouble. i'm sorry i said this yesterday and kevin gave me such a look because
1: i've been begging her to work with me on a creative project for literally years
4: (laughs) um yeah well the thing is i'm the worst um and i want to do things when i want to do them (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, there are a bunch of reasons that we work well together. Uh, the, the the fastest way to explain why it works is that um, my biggest creative problem is that I say yes too much. And Sophie's biggest creative problem is that she says no too much. So she has a hard time creating things like out of nothing, because I think that, you know, I don't want to speak for you. But when we last talked about this, it sounds like your internal editor is very often like, no, no, no put those ideas away they aren't good right
4: enough. I don't like anything that isn't perfect
1: and my internal editor is just like yeah that's great that's great let's just pile it all in and we'll worry about the fact that it doesn't actually make any sense later um which has led to a lot of my solo attempts at projects uh I will work a very long time on them and then at the end it's just like well this is a mess uh whereas I think Sophia's had a hard time
4: <laughs> I don't have anything
1: <laughs> right so as a result we balance each other out really well
4: right um and and yeah, we, we've also learned a lot from each other. So yes. I think that our starting places are very much like he's a writer and I'm an editor. But that being said, having now been working on this show for over a year now, like he's gotten much better at editing and thinking through things logistically. And I've gotten much better at generating ideas creatively um, just through practice. Right. Um, so we've, we've definitely learned from each other a ton. But um, – I mean, it's amazing. We are just constantly spitballing ideas and outlining stories. Um, It's also, it means we never stop working, you know, (laughs) because it's like, if we're together, well, I guess we're working on the show. And so like, it it does mean that I, I say this, like, you know, I know what I'm talking about. We've done this maybe twice now is that like, we have to set aside a time to be like, okay, we're going on a date and we're not going to talk about our trash son, Juno,
1: right? Juno stays home. (laughs) We're getting a babysitter. Um,
4: And it's, it's really hard not to, he just always pops his little head up. Um, but like, we really have to like set aside the time to not talk about the show. We almost never follow through on that because we're always talking about the show. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's great. It's actually great working together. And we, we, Really don't fight about it very much. Amazingly,
0: yeah. yeah. Wow,
4: it's crazy. Yeah,
0: because I I can imagine if with with you know a different couple with different personalities would not would not be comfortable always thinking about the show.
4: Yeah, we go really hard. Yeah,
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's also the, the part of the precedent for this is that even before we wrote things together, like it's oh the thing that we have always done together is to talk about stories a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's true. To the point where. Uh, we've needed to learn to watch ourselves because our first reaction, like whenever we go see a show or whenever we go see a movie is we leave the theater and like pick it to pieces and just, and just tear it apart. Even if we like, in fact, especially if we like it, um, because we're just so interested in opening it up and seeing the cogs and how they work. And that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way reasonably. Cause sometimes people just want to watch a thing and they don't want to like have a whole conversation about like plot structure. Cause why would you? Uh, but because of that, we have just been honing how we think and talk about stories for seven years at this point.
4: Yes. Yeah. And, and now we don't have to like make our friends suffer through it all the time. Like now we can put it to some good use. It's nice.
0: (laughs) So the episode home brought back these really powerful memories of what my dad used to do when I was a kid, which was, he would set up this anti monster matrix over my bed each night. It had like. Little knobs and lasers, and I wouldn't go to sleep until he set it up. That's so he awesome. had to like set it up over the bed. Do you have similar memories of your parents doing that kind of thing?
4: Ugh, I wish.
0: No, it's just that story just broke my big <laughs> goopy heart.
4: Well, are you are you sort of thinking? Are you thinking of the magic rhyme in Home?
0: I am thinking of the magic rhyme. Okay,
4: because that this is interesting. The magic rhyme is kind of a, a device
0: plot device. Yeah,
4: yeah, and the reason for it is because. The version of Home that we aired on the show is the second version of Home. It's rewritten. And we wrote it. We recorded it. The recording got all hecked up. It was real bad. Yeah. Like, it was just unlistenable. So we put it on the back burner. And at that point, I was like, oh, my God, I don't even know how to begin sound designing this anyway. So let's just move on with other stuff, and we'll get back to it. And then when, by the time we came back to it, we were like, oh, my gosh, we don't use narrators anymore. Like, that's not what we're doing as a show anymore so we want to rewrite this and to like home used to have a narrator who had right most of the content
1: we literally rewrote it and took out the biggest part
4: right so we got rid of the narrator but that meant that we needed to have something to build tension to make you think that there was a monster coming which is why the magic rhyme exists at all right it's a it's a device yeah um it, and it was kevin's idea and it was a brilliant one right um but yeah, no, I don't have any.
1: The closest thing I can think of is I uh when I was a kid, uh, my brother and I shared a bedroom. We had bunk beds and I was top bunk and he was the bottom bunk. And after our parents would like, you know, close the door, we would talk for like a while. And it, uh, to the point where our dad would often come in and yell at us because we'd been talking for hours. Um but I had this strange compulsion about how um about the fact that like when we talked uh, I needed to say good night and then he needed to say good night and it needed to go in that order and nobody could fall asleep and he could not say good night first, but it was like this like special little ritual that was, we have our talk, we both say good night. And if that's the case, then I will wake up in the morning and he won't be dead. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> I, was, I was a very paranoid little child. Um, <laughs> oh so, so that is the, uh, that's the closest equivalent I can think of really.
4: That's so fun. This mind you is Kevin's same brother who writes the music for the show. Yes. House. Oh, Ryan. Then. Yes. Yes. Right. Cool. Nepotism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, you've alluded to Ryan's music being very different um, mm. for what he provides for the show. What it, what sort of music does he make?
1: Uh, his band Boagrius makes uh, kind of like a punk funk sort of thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I, I will spell it because I, he's always upset because his band name is impossible to spell. Uh, B-O-A-G-R-I-U-S. They, I, I like their stuff a lot. But I, one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, that is a group effort. Whereas when he writes music with us, uh, there's actually a lot of, especially like Sophie's creative sensibilities that end up in there. Like you two end up talking for a long time about the way the music has to look.
4: Yeah. And I'm really fussy about it.
1: And also, <laughs> what it's, well, it's a really interesting pairing because it's a case where... The genre that Ryan is most comfortable in is not really your thing. No, not at all. And so that's a really cool case of two kind of disparate creative forces coming together to make this third weird thing that neither one of them would have thought of individually.
4: Right. And I'm, oh God, I'm so happy with all of this. I mean, my my absolute favorite piece of music that he's produced, which wasn't my idea. It was Kevin's idea. Um, but it's the, the music in Angel of Brahma that plays on new Kinshasa. I think it is so beautiful. And the episode, that episode was supposed to end with, I think Juno's theme as it usually does, but I loved that piece of music so much that I put it back in at the end. And I even let it play out after the end of the monologue. Cause I just, I was like, you know what? The audience can sit and listen to this and they can <laughs> like it. Um, And I'm really, I'm really happy with it. I, I think he did such a beautiful job. And I, I mean, this is so, I'm the, okay, again, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I'm the worst, and one of the reasons is because I frequently listen to just the end of that episode of my own show, and I cry, because <laughs> I love it.
0: <laughs> Do you have a favorite Kate Jones voice?
3: <laughs>
4: oh, It's a great question.
0: Um,
4: I mean... I, I know it's boring, but, like, Rita, like, how could it not be Rita? Uh, <laughs> I
1: don't know. I think it's Rita. Rita's the
4: best. Rita is every mom's favorite character. Yes. Like, anybody on the show, if we've asked their mom who they like the best, it's always Rita. <laughs> she's yeah. so cute. Rita, um, Rita's
1: my favorite voice, but Kate does a just a great face when she's doing Miasma's voice. Does she? Yeah, she does. Well, because she's very expressive and when she does Miasma's voice that's the only time i ever see her face like slow down is i guess oh, what i mean true. yeah well,
4: but she also does a great face when she does rita because like part of what you don't hear is that <laughs> she actually has to like gear up for the voice mm. so she'll like rev up her voice into it and like every time we like start recording you hear sort of like a nah, nah, like a lawnmower kind of <laughs>
1: That that is not an exaggeration. That's direct. Yeah, it direct. sounds like
4: that except better because she's better. But like and then she'll kind of like keep the lower half of her jaw where it is and then the whole upper part of her face like revs backwards into it and then like comes back down.
0: That's amazing.
4: It's such a joy.
0: Is there video footage
4: of this phenomenon? Oh, I've got to get some. Yeah, we should. Sure.
1: Recording recording with Kate is an absolute
4: delight. It's just wonderful.
0: Um I wanted to talk about the uh, Michaela Buckley illustrations and posters mm. that you've been putting up because they are astounding.
1: Yes, they are.
0: I initially encountered uh, Michaela Buckley on Tumblr making Wolf 359 fan art. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was wondering how how did you hook up with her?
4: Oh, on Tumblr. Um, because she she made um, some initial fan art of our show. and And we've been lucky enough to see some really beautiful fan art of our show and we saw hers and she basically had done an entire comic panel of that scene from the end of murderous mask. Um, and it was just so gorgeous. And I loved like her takes on the characters and, um, all of the detail and how she just really had tapped into it exactly the spirit of the characters. And it wasn't necessarily how we imagined them looking because frankly, it's really hard for us not to imagine them looking like the actors. Um, but we loved like the, the way she had drawn them was just so perfect to their, to their spirits. And so we were like, Oh, we should, we should just reach out to her and like, see if she wants to actually collaborate on stuff. So I, I did on Tumblr and, um, and she really, really did want to, and we have a lot of stuff um, in the works with her, not just not just the stuff that we've been putting out, but, but more in-depth than that, which we're really excited to share. Cool.
0: What are you prepared to tell me, or I guess what should I be prepared to hear about the concierge?
4: <laughs> um, nothing satisfying whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was, like, very important to us because we, first of all, like, when people were sort of requesting...
1: Bonus episode. A,
4: yeah, a bonus episode for the concierge. That had like never occurred to us that somebody would ask for <laughs> that because we weren't really thinking of him as a character. But then like everybody latched onto it. And like the whole fan base was like, we want a concierge bonus episode. And we were like, all right, but then you're not going to like it. And they were like, we want it anyway.
1: So if I may even tweak what Sophie said, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if nothing satisfying totally covers... The, the questions that you want answered... May not be answered, but it will certainly be momentous.
4: Yes, it will be momentous. It's actually going to, like, it'll propel us into the second season.
0: Yes. Is the concierge a human being? No. Okay.
4: But we probably will never tell you anything more about it than that. Um, Yeah. He's He's just a concierge, you know? That's a species.
0: How did you decide on the frame? for the penumbra how did you how did you choose the name the penumbra
4: um we had a brainstorm with some of our our first actors um i mean so that was when it was still very much modeled on the twilight zone Mm -hmm. which is why it has the frame that it does because we wanted sort of like a rod serling kind of character to introduce the show um who just was sort of all knowing and wasn't connected to any of the stories and this was important to me like that he be the writer which is why I strong-armed Kevin into playing the concierge <laughs> um yeah so that's why we have that framework and th- and then we were just sort of hunting for something that would encompass many stories which is why we came up with the idea of the endless hotel. Mm-hmm. Um and then the the name we just wanted something <laughs> I know what it was wasn't it like we wanted first we tried to come up with what at that time was our guiding principle for the show which <laughs> as we talked about at the beginning of this interview is turned into something quite different. But at the beginning we were like well what are all of our stories going to be and we've said this before the answer was well we think maybe either spooky or a bummer like all of the stories all of the stories are going to be one of those two things um so we just wanted a name that would kind of convey that idea without being too specific and penumbra sounds cool and it it's you know has to do with shadows right which means it's spooky but it also could be sad um right yeah
1: we had to talk about how the twilight zone is an absolutely genius name Because it evokes literally nothing but an emotion. Right. Uh, Right. It's
4: just like, here's the space where things are weird. Like, that's all it Mm -hmm. means. It doesn't mean anything. It's just
1: a space between two things that we also think is kind of creepy.
4: Yeah. Right. A liminal space, as Noah Symes would say. He's very Mm -hmm. into that concept.
0: (laughs) Uh, Let's close out with this question Where do you think this medium is going?
4: I mean,. Podcasting in general, I think has to be the wave of the future, right? In the mm-hmm. same way that like on-demand TV is so much more now than regular TV where you're sort of at the mercy of the programming. Um, So I, I think certainly podcasting in general, like it, it always surprises me that podcasting is still fairly niche because like I don't get it. Why would you not just pick and choose what you want to listen to when you want to listen to it? I don't understand why everybody's not doing that all the time. I don't know. I I definitely have hopes for fiction, for audio drama. Um, I think it, maybe it will always be kind of niche. I mean, right now it's really a niche of a niche because not everybody listens to podcasts. And of those that do, I think most people listen to nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But there's something so wonderful, I think, about that it has a relatively low barrier of entry that you can have so many indie productions um, that can be so widely accessible. Like that's, that's Mm -hmm. amazing that we are, to quote Noah Symes again, we're just some garbage people in a garbage room. And no,
0: (laughs) I mean, maybe in the Tumblr way, but no, not garbage.
4: Thank you. Um, but you know, we can reach people all over the world and tell our stories and amazingly connect with people all over the world and, and tell stories that they have wanted told. And I think, just the mere fact that you can get so many indie productions in the door, I think that's inherently valuable. Um, and so I really hope to see it grow more.
1: Yeah. I mean, what I will say is from seeing high school aged kids and sort of the kinds of media that they interact with, uh, there, there are sets of kids that talk about podcasts a lot, uh, that are, that are very aware of them and that are very aware of this space. I think that part of it is that people I think sometimes will say as shorthand that um, podcasts are the new radio. And it's and it's not quite the same thing because you have this case where there is still an old radio, uh, which means that you have a lot of people who have, you know, used old radio for a very long time and are perfectly content with it. Um, from where I'm sitting, I think that you have a lot of people, especially, you know, younger people who are growing up now who are used to this uh, culture of I go and I seek out what I like. And there are so many people making things that chances are pretty good someone's making something that I like. And I think that to those people, this space is going to appeal to them more and more as we get more and more kinds of voices in here. Because for a lot of kids and a lot of people our age, the concept of I really want a story that is this kind of story or it represents this group of people or, you know, it has these design sensibilities or something like that. And you just seek out the things that you like and you hoard them, right? They are, they are your things that you follow, uh, is a lot more familiar. And I think that audio drama podcasts in general are really well positioned for that.
4: Right. It's, it's self curated yeah. is really what it is. Yeah. Instead of like, instead of you being sort of spoon fed whatever is in the mainstream at that particular moment. Right. You've, you can sort of pick what you want to listen to.
1: It's one of many reasons that I feel a real responsibility to offer, I guess, in terms of representation, things that I have not seen. Sure. Uh, Because I want to make sure that there's not somebody, I was going to say some kid, but really just anybody who goes out there looking for themselves in a story. And they can't find that. I, we can't cover everybody. There are too many different kinds of people. And I want a lot more people to be helping us out on this. Especially when I think about my students and kids that age who are growing up and trying to figure out the world and trying to figure out how they get to think about themselves, I have I have very very strong feelings about that.
4: Yeah, which as I think, um, I think we came up with this recently. That really, our idea is you deserve to see yourself in stories. Mm-hmm. You know that everybody does, um, not just one or two kinds of people, and. You know, we can't be all things to all people. And as I think Kevin's saying, like, we hope that more producers and more creators will make this type of thing so that more types of people can be represented because like obviously we will never be able to do that all by ourselves. Um, but that's that's our goal. That's wonderful. Thanks. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Sophie and Kevin, thank you so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival. This was fantastic. Thank you so much yeah. for having us. Thanks this for having was, us.
4: This was just absolutely a joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: You deserve to see yourself in stories. If you're not seeing yourself in stories, write one. Or seek out people who are writing them and support them with money. Incidentally, you can support the Penumbra by visiting their Patreon page at patreon.com slash thepenumbrapodcast. Stories have a great and marvelous power. Let's use that power for good. Tell me the stories you want to hear by calling the Wondery Gag Bag. That's 424-224-5711 or gagbag5711. Leave your first name, where you're from, and what you want to hear. Or ask me a question or whatever. Just, you know, be considerate. Thank you for listening to Radio Drama Revival. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to iTunes and give us a star rating and a review. If you have a chance, please fill out the Wondery survey at wondery.com slash survey. It'll help support the show. All right. Fabulous. Now, it's time for some credits. Our theme music is Danger Digi-Do by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud or the man himself in Oakland, California. If you're around, maybe you can catch one of his shows. Our line producers are Eli McElveen and Matthew Boudreaux. Eli is a slick private dick with a heart of gold and a 10-ton punch. He lives at the top of a shining skyscraper in a maze of frosted glass doors. He solves mysteries about dogs. Matt runs a racket at a tennis camp. First, he teaches you tennis. Then, he hits you with a racket. Our researchers are Heather Cohen and Monique Boudreau, and Monique just celebrated her birthday. Everyone say, happy birthday, Monique. Thank you, I hope she can hear your well wishes from her moon fortress. Heather runs yoga retreats on Mars, where you are less flexible because you're in a spacesuit and buffeted by dust storms, as Heather leads your group in Chaturanga Dandasanas on a barren mesa. Packages begin at $80 million. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhound, who doesn't collect death masks. He says he's in it for the hearts and minds. He means it literally. Never accept canned tomatoes from Fred without very careful examination beforehand. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.